Welcome, everybody. And we are on page 20 today, picking up on page 20 of our notes in the Get a Life series. Just a couple of announcements. One is that uh, next Sunday, the worship hour, the 930 hour, will be devoted to the Lord's Table communion the entire hour. And then at 5 o'clock that evening, we're going to have the second ordinance that Christ gave to the church, that of baptism. So communion, baptism next week. And then two weeks from today is Easter. We only have one service on Easter. No uh, Sunday school, no discovering God, just a worship service. And that'll be at 11 o'clock. So no 930 service. If you show up at 930, you'll get a parking spot, but uh, hardly anybody else will be here. And speaking of parking, uh, I'll be sending a note around about this as we get closer to Easter. But on Easter, uh, we uh, certainly anticipate having parking issues with the relatively small parking lots we have. On normal Sundays, we're at 80 and above percent full in the lot. And I just read a statistic this week that said, just like with uh, seating in an auditorium, parking is the same rule of thumb. When you're 80% full, you're full. And uh, so you need to figure something out. So that's on a normal Sunday, let alone on Easter. So we're going to ask you, those of you that are able to walk, to park down Benson as far as you're able to walk, and that will free up spaces in the uh, parking lot. So next week, Ordinance Sunday, Communion and Baptism, and then two weeks is Easter, and we'll have just one worship service that morning at 11 o'clock. All right, page 20, and today is the penultimate lesson in our series, Get a Life. I just like to say penultimate every now and then, but it's our second to the last uh, uh, session in this series, and we left off on page 20. And in order to get a life, the first thing we start with is what is my purpose, and then I try to order my life around that, that purpose. We've seen that our purpose is to glorify God. We've seen that God is achieving that purpose of his glory, his character, being uh, being advanced in his world through his image bearers, through the mission that he gave to the church. There is what we call the Great Commission, and that mission is carried out by the uh, institution of the church. They started at the same time in Acts chapter 2. They advance together. You don't have the one without the other. So that if I'm going to pursue my purpose, if you're going to pursue your purpose, then the church is going to have to be central to that. And we began on page 20 giving some practical things that we need to ask ourselves in order to align our lives around the mission of the church. And you see point B the mission pursued, this is not theoretical information, it's intensely practical, and it needs to shape then our lives and ministries. So what do we do? Here are some implications, some principles, view all components of life from the perspective of the objective of the biblical mission, focus on eternal rewards for the work of the mission rather than temporal rewards, and demonstrate the primacy of the local church in the way you structure your life. We talked about that last week. And then we left off, uh, actually on page 21, but I just want to put that in context. There needs to be a culture created within the church that each of us needs to participate in strengthening, joyfully embracing sacrifice for the sake of mission, maintaining a church planting mindset. And then if you'll look at page 21, do the work, actually do the work of church planting. So this is where we left off uh, last week. So we have a a church planting mindset because we're committed to the mission and the mission goes forward through the advance, the multiplication of churches. And so we have a mindset that says we want to see that happen and 
as uh, as God opens the door, we individually would be involved in, be willing to be involved in church planting. So now I'm encouraging you, even now, to think about: Would I be willing to do that? Would I be willing to sacrifice uh, comfort and familiarity for some discomfort and unfamiliarity for the sake of advancing the the mission? By God's grace, we're going to have occasion to do that. We're going to have occasion to train a church planter here that will lead a group of people out of here to do what we did at this church. It's the same thing that happened here. We were kicked out of our parent church to start this one. And so we're looking forward to kicking some of you out of here. I've got, I've already got a list of some of you that are going to be on that first church planting team. But really, you know, if the time comes for us to be able to do that, and then we say we need a core group of people and we'd like to send 50 people with this church plant, we need 50 people who are eager and ready to do that. But we won't be eager and ready to do that if we haven't bought into what we've been laying out the last few weeks, that this is the way the mission is advanced and uh, that I've been gifted in order to contribute to that. So you need to be thinking about that now so that when the time comes, you might be a candidate for that. And then, top of page 21, we actually do the work of church planting. The work of church planting emissaries is vital to our global mission. However, we must not be content to allow others to pursue the mission in our place. A church planting mindset requires that each congregation plan to initiate or participate in the establishment of new local churches. So not every church is able to do that, break off a a number of people to to plant a church. All of them should strive to be healthy enough and able to do that. But even if you're not, you can partner with other churches to do that. And that's why you've heard me talking about the church planting network. I mentioned that last Sunday afternoon at our family meeting that uh, we are helping get started. That's a network of churches that are banding together for the purpose of pooling our resources in order to see uh, planting planting move forward. So even if your church can't do it and you can't uh, um, daughter a church, you can be involved with churches that are doing that. And we would like to do both, be involved in the network, but also be a church that uh, sends planters and people with the planter out from here. So how do we do that? Active participation in church planting is faithful to the ministry pattern of the Apostle Paul. So these are some of the benefits that will um, that that will come out of it. It's 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 emulating what we've seen in the ministry of the Apostle Paul from Acts fourteen fifteen and sixteen, and then actually all the way through chapter eighteen in his second missionary journey. And then active participation in church planting yields these kinds of practical benefits. It spurs evangelism in both the mother and daughter churches, creates a passion for the mission, thereby enlarging the pool of potential missionaries. And it addresses the problem of decrease, the decreasing number of churches in America. Now, you may not have thought that. You may not have thought that there's a decreasing number of churches in America because you drive around and you see all of these, all of these churches. But as you, as you look at the numbers of churches, just of all stripes, this is not good churches, this is just churches, of all stripes, and you do that per population, we actually have fewer churches now than we did 60, 60 years ago. And church planting is the way the mission is advanced. And as I say, this is just all that chart you see at the bottom is all just um, is just churches in general, not uh, quality churches. So if you want just quality churches, Bible-believing churches, churches that believe in uh, form matters and the way you do things matter, 
as an expression of the character of God. You have very few churches, unfortunately, who understand and believe and implement those things. And so you have fewer still churches. So there is a crying need for good gospel preaching, Bible believing, God honoring churches. And by God's grace, then we want to be used uh, directly to daughter churches out of out of our church out of our church here. So we're training a guy right now uh, for that, and we'll see where the Lord leads with it. Uh, we were, we trained Matt to do that, and Matt left. So we hate Matt. Now, you know, the good news is Matt's doing his work down in, down in Jacksonville, but we didn't know what, how the Lord would lead. Would Matt be a planter out of here? That was a, that was a real possibility. And, uh, so you don't know how the Lord's gonna lead those guys that are in pastors in training, but we regularly want to have guys in pastors in training so that we have a pipeline of guys that at least potentially can be ordained and can lead a church plant for us in the future. All right. Now, page 22 and 23 is just pretty much a long quote that I'm not going to read for you. You can read that on your own. I'd like you to go to page 24. And for us to look at then the last part of this course, today and next week, and then we're finished with this this series. But on page 24, you see the seven habits of highly effective servants, colon, personal management for personal ministry. So today and next week, I want to go through these seven habits that need to be part of our lives if we're going to be effective in our service for the Lord. But that subtitle, Personal Management management for Personal Ministry, is so chosen because I have seen over the years that people are only able to effectively engage in ministry to the extent that their personal life is in order. If your personal life is not managed well, then you can't do ministry the way you would like. And that's, that's frustrating, convicting for a lot of us, but, but it's true. To the extent that I don't have my act together in my personal life, to that extent I'm unable to be as effective as I could possibly be in the work of the Lord. So, Christian people who are called, we are called together to do this, need to then think about how we order our private lives. I remember years ago reading a book by that title, Ordering Your Private Life. And in the very in the introduction, Gordon MacDonald, who wrote that book, said, uh, I always know uh, the state of my life by looking at the condition of the interior of my car. And if my car is an absolute wreck, my life, it's, it's an indication of what's going on in my life. My life's a wreck. You know, I'm just flying around and I'm throwing stuff all over the place. And believe me, I've been there. And, you, and some of you are laughing. You've been there as well. Now, some of you that have never had a messy car, we hate you along with Matt. Okay. <laughs> but you know, you know the principle there. The, the more you've got that together, the less cluttered your mind is, the more you can clearly focus on then the things that are that are most important. So this idea of personal management is extremely important. Now, before I go and delve into this, I am not interested in giving unnecessary guilt to people who, in God's providence, are unable to do things they might otherwise like to do. So there are people here who have physical issues, or you are in a stage of life 
that you can't do the things that you that you used to do. And that stage of life may be age, but it also may be home life. It may be may be children. And you house you you housewives, if you have small children at home, uh, you know what a struggle that can be to take care of the kids and just try to keep you know dinner ready and try to keep the house straightened out and have that kind of personal management going on. So. Uh, that's a struggle in itself. That's the pr- priority that God has given you. That's a mission field that God has given you as well. And so I'm not seeking to heap unnecessary guilt on anybody who in God's providence is unable to do the things that uh, they would otherwise otherwise do. But for the rest of us, those of us who have discretion in the way that we order our lives, then we need to give close adherence to some of these principles, these seven uh, habits of highly effective servants. Now, at the bottom of page 24, I've got some recommended resources, and I'm just going to highlight three of those. I've got them all on here because they would all be helpful to you. But the third one down, Dave Harvey, Rescuing Ambition, is a book that I recommend to you. The idea there is, in Rescuing Ambition, is how on the one hand do I have godly ambition without being selfishly ambitious? That's what he's, that's what he's addressing there. I mean, I want to be ambitious for God and God's glory rather than being ambitious for me and then ordering my life for that godly ambition. So that's what that is. John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life, uh, is a book and I think you can, you download that PDF for free from desiringgod.org there. And then the Richard uh, Swenson books, uh, any of those, they're all along the same lines about margin and uh, and the overload syndrome. And that's just about how to uh, eliminate unnecessary things from your life so that you've got more time for, for what's important. Okay? Page 25. So who am I? I am your constant companion, your greatest helper and heaviest burden. I will push you onward or drag you down to failure. I'm completely at your command. Half of the things you do, you might just as well turn over to me, and I'll be able to do them quickly and correctly. Who am I? I'm easily managed. You must merely be firm with me. Show me exactly what you, how you want something done, and after a few lessons, I'll do it automatically. I'm the servant of all great individuals and the last of all failures as well. Those who are great, I made great. Those who are failures, I have made failures. Who am I? I'm not a machine, though I work with all the precision of a machine plus the intelligence of a human. You may run me for a profit or run me for ruin. It makes no difference to me. Who am I? Take me, train me, be firm with me, and I will place the world at your feet. Be easy with me, and I will destroy you. Who am I? And many of you know the answer to this. I am habit. Habit. That That is why Stephen Covey starts his book as the seven habits of highly effective of highly effective people. And we're taking then those habits, but we're giving them a biblical gloss. I said on the previous page that you know, Stephen Covey's book is an, is an example of common grace, of good thoughts from somebody who's not using them toward uh, Christ's mission. But you take those common grace issues and apply them to the end that God has given to us, and then these habits can be helpful. So that's what we're doing in the pages that follow. So habit number one is to be purpose-driven. Uh, I've renamed his habits. Uh, his very first habit is begin with the end in mind. But I've said be purpose-driven. Know what your purpose is and then be driven, be driven by it. 
And look at these quotes on the importance of purpose. I now know this, or I know this now. Every man gives his life for what he believes. Every woman gives her life for what she believes. Sometimes people believe in little or nothing, and so they give their lives to little or nothing. One life is all we have, and we live it as we believe in living it, and then it's gone. But to surrender who you are and to live without belief is more terrible than dying, even more terrible than dying young. Abraham Lincoln said people are just about as happy as they make up their mind to be. Charles Swindoll, this quote that I'm going to read for you, when I was working uh, as a computer programmer years ago, I remember on a cubicle in one of my co-workers' uh, offices, he had uh, penned this statement that I, that I read. And I read this thing that I'm going to read to you, and then I saw at the bottom that it was from Charles Swindoll. This, uh, many of you know who he is. He's been on the radio for many years, written a lot of books and so on. He's been a pastor, a seminary president. But this is what Swindoll said. The longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think or say or do. It's more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. Now, what does attitude have to do with purpose? Well, those who have purpose, I'm going to show you on the next page, are people with a different mindset. And that mindset affects the way they look at the things that happen happen to them. It, it changes and improves their attitude. So bottom of page 25, there's a profound difference in outlook between those who are driven by their God-given purpose and those who are simply driven. You know, driven by God-given purpose or people who are simply driven. Driven by circumstances or driven by other people or whatever it may be. The chart below contrasts the two approaches. So on page 26, you've got driven people and then you've got purpose-driven people. Driven people that are just driven as they drift with the circumstances, what happens to them rather than them happening to circumstances. You know, instead of them happening to life, life happens to them. And so they're driven. And they're driven here and there without without purpose. And how does that affect them? Well, here are some of the ways that each is affected. One is easily offended, the other not. One blames others, the other takes responsibility. One gets angry when things don't go well, the other thanks God even in trials. The one wallows in self-pity, the, others, the other focuses on what they can change. Now, what's the key issue between those two people? I'll give you one word that I think is the key issue, and it is the word confidence. Confidence. The person who is confident in his or her purpose will be the person who then is not easily offended. I know what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And so I'm not easily offended. And if the criticism that someone levels helps me achieve that, then I consider that a helpful thing. 
But if I'm just driven by what, whatever is happening, I don't know whether I'm doing the right thing or not. So somebody criticizes me, I'm devastated by it. And if I know my purpose and I'm confident in that purpose, then I'll take responsibility for advancing that purpose, moving it forward as opposed to blame shifting to others and the other things you see there. So confidence is the key word. Do I know my purpose and am I confident then that this is what God would have me to pursue? I want to read to you an excerpt, some excerpts from an essay that one of our teenagers in our church wrote. I won't give the teenager's name uh, at risk of embarrassing, but I I thought it was good. And it expresses this connection between confidence and then one's purpose and what one does and how they do it. And these are just some excerpts. It starts this way. Be yourself is a saying often quoted in the world today, especially to teenagers. Although this maxim may seem overused and trite, to me it holds a great deal of truth. Self-identity and self-confidence have been a battle for me throughout my life. I've often wondered what people think of me and what I can do to better fit in and have longed to change elements about my appearance and my personality. However, as I've grown older, I've learned that confidence does not come from the way that I look or from how many friends that I have. Rather, it comes from a realization that the God of heaven has made me with my particular character the exact way he wanted to. For this reason, I'm now free to live in my community and go to my school with absolute confidence. Discussing my beliefs with people, talking about my interests with friends, using my talents to help others, and making new acquaintances are things I'm able to do now to show my unique character. If one is not confident in her own character, confident in her own character, she will not feel adequately prepared to help others in an effective way. In other words, attaining confidence in oneself is the first step in aiding others and being a true friend to them. Because of this newly found assurance in my character, I'm better equipped to empathize and feel with others. For example, and then goes on to give an example of how that's happened in her life. And then I'll go down to another excerpt. Those who are secure in their identity are free to pursue what they love. Those who are secure in their identity are free to pursue what they love. The empathy of the confident can be put into passionate action. The empathy of the confident can now be put into passionate action. This perspective has allowed me to engage in the things I love for the people I love. And then one last excerpt at the very end. Character produces confidence, freeing one to care for others and pursue her passions. This is the best way to truly, quote, be yourself. Now, that's from a teenager who's learning the connection between who I am, what I believe, what I'm confident about, so that I get up every day and now I can pursue the things that matter most and thinking through making those those kinds of connections. Wouldn't it be a great thing if every teenager was able to think it through that way and order their life, order their life accordingly? Now... That's an essay that uh, this teen was writing for a scholarship, you know, to be considered for a scholarship and all that. Uh, and so there's a lot for us to fill in between the lines. Where does this character come from? It comes from God. You know, the God of heaven has made me precisely as he wanted me to be, this, this teen says. Uh, but also, what is my identity? My identity is in Christ. And, where, and why do I have this confidence then? It's not because of how great I am, but how great Christ is. 
and what Christ has done for me and what Christ has, has, is, has made and is making of me and has called me, has called me to do. So on page 26, when I say confidence is key, uh, I'm very serious about that. Many of you here are people without confidence. And that should not, that should not be true of Christian people. Now, who's, who's, who, from whom do we get this confidence? It's from Christ. And what does the Bible say about that confidence? Philippians 4.13, famously, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So my confidence is in the fact that I have this relationship with the Lord and that's what matters most. And now I don't have to be driven by then circumstances and by people. I'm confident in him and I'm confident in his purpose for me. And so I get up every day with the joy of pursuing that purpose in the circumstances that God has placed me. So there's this purpose-driven thinking. And then on page 26, purpose-driven speaking. Our words expose our thoughts, as we saw in the 930 hour. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And notice the difference purpose makes in just the way people speak. Driven people, that is, people who are driven by other people and driven by circumstances, they, when asked to do something, it's I'll try. Purpose-driven people can say, I'll, I'll do it. Now, they've already considered, can I do it? Because they've gotten their, they've got their, their life in order. And so then they say, I can do it, um, not just I'll try. The person says I'll try just because they don't know what's going to happen. They don't know what's going to happen this afternoon. They don't know what's going to happen this, af- uh, this next week. And they've made no plans for it. The driven person says that's just the way I am. The purpose-driven person wants to conform to the purpose that they've been given. I can do better. The driven person is a victim. There's nothing I can do. The purpose-driven person looks at all the other options. A driven person has to do things. A purpose-driven person chooses to do things. The driven person says, I can't. purpose-driven person says, there's got to be a way. For a driven person who's driven by other people, you can ruin my day. The purpose-driven person says, I'm not going to let your attitude rub off on me. And those could go on and on. So it begins with confidence in one's identity in Christ and then in the purpose to which Christ has called them. And then you start to see these kinds of differences in the thinking and in the speaking. And even if that speaking is not audible, then it's speaking to yourself, saying things like this. And then there's purpose-driven doing. There's thinking, there's speaking, and there's doing. Responsibility can be thought of as a compound of two words, response and ability. Responsibility. You've got the ability to respond. Responsibility. That is, I take responsibility because I recognize I have the ability to respond. We each have the ability to choose what we will do and how we'll do it, and therefore we're responsible for our choices. Unfortunately, the choices we make are often not the best. Instead of being consciously based on pursuit of our purpose, they're based on something else, which is by definition less important. The extremes that result are what I call the runaround and the layaround dilemmas. So here's the runaround dilemma. Because we don't know what's really important, everything seems important. Because everything seems important, we have to do everything. Other people, unfortunately, see us doing everything, so they expect us to do everything. Doing everything keeps us so busy, we don't have time to think about what's really important. 
There are a lot of people on that kind of merry-go-round. You know that? The run-around dilemma. If I don't know what's important, everything seems important. And so I'm pursuing all of this stuff, and I am running, chasing my tail. But then there's the opposite, though. There's the lay-around dilemma. Because we don't know what's really important, nothing seems important. So it's either everything's important or nothing's important. Because nothing seems important, we do nothing. Other people, unfortunately, see us doing nothing, so they expect us to do nothing. Doing nothing keeps us so busy, we don't take time to think about what's really important. And you ever heard the phrase that says, if you want to get something done, give it to what kind of person? Right? A busy person. Give it to a busy person. Even in in the work of the church, as you think about, you know, we're going to start this ministry or we need people to do a particular thing, this this is what happens. You automatically go to the list of people who are already doing a bunch of things. And you've got, if you're not careful, you can have those people who are trying to pursue and do good and right things in the runaround dilemma, and you've got a bunch of people in the layaround dilemma. And the layaround people aren't considered because you see them doing nothing, so nobody expects them to do anything. So that's got to change on both ends. It's got to change in us individually. There should be no layaround or runaround people. These are people who are, what we should be, are people who know our purpose, know our gifts, and we methodically and joyfully, day in, day out, week in, week out, use those gifts to advance that purpose. And every one of us needs to do that. So there's no one who's not then to be considered for being actively involved in the Lord's work in a way that where he has providentially placed you allows. All right, top of page 27. Some more quotes then along this line of the need to be uh, purpose-driven in what we do. It has long since come to my attention that people of accomplishment rarely sat back and let things happen to them. They went out and happened to things. A successful life does not result from chance, nor is it determined by fate or good fortune, but rather through a succession of successful days. Only one thing has to change for us to know happiness in our lives, where we focus our attention. And then, most important, from Philippians 3, one thing I do, says Paul, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. So so being purpose-driven, that's habit number one. What is my purpose? Now, I've spent weeks going through our purpose. Our purpose is to bring glory to God through maturing obedience in every role of life. My purpose is to bring glory to God through maturing obedience in every role of life. As we, we saw on page two in your notes up at the top in that personal mission statement, as we pursue the biblical mission. So that's my purpose. That's your purpose. That's what God has given us. So now I need to center my life and my priorities around that and be driven in the way I think, the way I talk, and what I do according to that purpose. That's habit number one. Habit number two, then, is keep your eye on the prize. It's one thing to know my purpose. It's another thing to stay at it. And that's what habit number two is about. Keep your eye on the prize. We've looked at the effects, positive and negative, of having a purpose-driven perspective. An outlook that sees all our relationships and circumstances as means to achieving our God-given purpose, 
of glorifying God in the biblical mission through maturing obedience to his word in every role of life is going to result in radically different thoughts, words, and actions. In addition, our understanding of our person will affect how we order our days because it will determine what's important and what is not. So we can be driven to distraction if we're not keeping our eye on the, on the prize. So I'm, I, I, can, I can know my purpose. You know, you could leave this series and say, I'm gung-ho. I'm going to reorder my life. I'm going to think differently by God's grace. I'm going to find my place in his mission and pursue it to the best of my God-given ability. But unless you keep your eye on the prize, you'll get distracted by other things. In Luke chapter 10, you have an example of someone being distracted by lesser things. And that was Martha, remember, and Jesus visiting the home of uh, Lazarus and his sisters Martha and Mary in Bethany. And here's what Luke 10 says. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me here to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. So here she's ordering Jesus around. That's always a bad thing to do. Okay. And then instead of Jesus doing what she says and saying something to Mary, he says something to Martha. And he says Martha twice. And I always say, when Jesus says your name twice, you're in big trouble. Okay. It's like your, it's like your parent using your middle name. He says, Martha, Martha. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So remaining focused on the mission that God has given us and ordering our lives around that is extremely important because it's easily be, easy to be distracted by lesser things. And even if I'm doing good things, you know, Martha was doing good things, but I'm I doing those good things for the purpose of advancing the best things. And so we say at the bottom of page 27, the American Heritage Dictionary defines a distracted as, quote, suffering conflicted emotions, distraught. When we fail to focus on our purpose, we're easily distracted. Our perspective becomes distorted. Emotions churn. Anxiety begins to build. And Martha's not alone in this. Everyone is well acquainted with distraction and worry. When we fail to focus on God's purpose for us and our circumstances and merely means to that end, we start worrying, and worrying is a serious affront to God. In effect, it says, I don't trust you, Lord. But when we keep our eye on the ball, the purpose of glorifying God in all our circumstances, worry and distraction are rarely issues. Those circumstances may remain unchanged. We now have an eternal perspective which removes the worry from the heart and replaces it with peace. An illustration of this need to keep our eye on the prize is found in this story. I've read this story in a couple of places, but D.A. Carson has it in his book on prayer called A Call to Spiritual Reformation. The top of page 28. In 1952, a young woman named Florence Chadwick stepped off the beach at Catalina Island and into the water determined to swim to the shore of mainland California. She was already an experienced long-distance swimmer. She was the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. The weather was foggy and chilly on the day she set out. She could scarcely see the boats that would accompany her. For 15 hours, she swam. For, for 15 hours, she swam. She begged to be uh, taken out, but her trainer urged persistence, telling her again and again that she could make it, that the shore was not far away. 
Physically and emotionally exhausted, she finally just stopped swimming and she was pulled out. The boats made for the shore and she discovered it was a mere half mile away. The next day she gave a news conference. What she said in effect was this. I do not want to make excuses for myself. I'm the one who asked to be pulled out. But I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Two months later, she proved the point. On a bright and clear day, she plunged back into the sea and swam the swam the distance. So keeping your eye on the goal, keeping your eye on the prize is what keeps us then from, from being distracted and, uh, and stopping even. And we've all experienced this, and I hate to admit that I've experienced it not just when I was a teenager, but even recently, and that is not keeping my eye on the road. Getting distracted by something. Distracted, what do we call it? Distracted driving, right? And uh, I used to have this really bad habit of having people in the backseat of my car, and I'm a person, when I speak to you, I like to look in your eyes. But if you're in the back seat, this can be a problem. And so I'm driving along, and, you know, we're having a conversation and all that. And I'm turning around, and I'm talking, and these guys are like, do you mind? <laughs> and so I had to learn to, you know, ignore, ignore the eye contact and just talk while I, was, uh, while I was keeping my eye on the road. But I remember when I was 16, one of the first jobs I had was driving a pickup truck for an auto supply place. And so locally, I would drive this pickup truck to deliver auto parts to uh, auto repair facilities. And so there I am, a teenager, 16, and I'm in this pickup truck driving around. And I'm looking down, I'm getting on the freeway, I'm on, a, I'm on an entry ramp. But why I did it while I'm on an entry ramp, I have no idea. But I decided to tune the radio while I was on this entry ramp. And I'm looking down, tuning the radio. And, you know, I just kind of had the steering wheel with that. You know, it was right at the right angle, so you could just kind of go around. And so I'm doing that, and I'm tuning the radio. And then I look up, and there are weeds going down in front of me. Okay? I've gone off the side of, I've gone off the, side of the road. Now, thankfully, I didn't flip the truck or any of that, and I didn't, get, I didn't get hurt. I was able to back out. My boss didn't find out about it and all of that. Even though the name of his company's on there and the phone number, if anybody wanted to call... So there's that, and then, of course, there's texting and all of that. All of these ways that if you don't have your eye on the prize, you get distracted and uh, you get off center. So keep your eye on the prize is habit number two. Here's habit number three, prioritizing the important. Prioritizing, then, the important. I know what my purpose is, but knowing it doesn't mean I'll always be evenly pursuing it, so I've got to have habit number two to keep my eye on the prize. And then doing that, now I have to prioritize the stuff I do under the purpose. So that's what habit number three is. The struggle, though, between the urgent and the important are things that we've got to have a good handle on if we're going to prioritize properly. Now, some of you may be familiar with a little book called The Tyranny of the Urgent. And I have that in those recommended resources. It's really just a little booklet. But Charles Hummel wrote that book a number of years ago, and it's the urgent has a tendency to tyrannize our schedules. But it, the stuff that's urgent may not be really important. So I've got to understand the difference between what's important and what's urgent. Most of us live, middle of page 28, in a constant tension between the urgent and important. 
The problem is that many important tasks don't have to be done today or even next week. Time in prayer, Bible study, a visit to an elderly friend, reading an important book, these can usually wait a while. But often urgent, though less important tasks, call for immediate response. Endless demands pressure every waking hour. Your home is bombarded with urgent tasks. Answer the phone. Pick up the toys off the floor, the doorbell. Buy the widget from the guy on the TV who's screaming that this is a limited time offer available only while supplies last. So I've got to do this now. Have you ever started to do one thing and then got up to do another, uh, got up to go to another part of the house, saw some, some stuff that needed to be picked up, and when you took it to its rightful place, you saw something else, and then the phone rang, and about 45 minutes later, you can't remember what you originally were going to do. The following paragraph shows the contrast between this harried pace and the life of the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry. J.B. Phillips wrote this little book called Your God is Too Small. And notice this, this paragraph from that little book caught my attention years ago. If there's one thing that should be quite plain to those who accept the revelation of God in nature and the Bible, it is that God is never in a hurry. Long preparation, careful planning, and slow growth would seem to be leading characteristics of spiritual life. Yet there are many people whose religious tempo is feverish. It is refreshing and salutary to study the poise and quietness of Christ. His task and responsibility might well have driven a man out of his mind. But he was never in a hurry, never impressed by numbers, never a slave of the clock. He was acting, he said, as he observed his father to act. Never in a hurry. Sometimes we would want God to be in a hurry with our circumstances. But God is always right on schedule. And you think about that. That kind of methodical, long-range plan that God does and that Christ exhibited is precisely the case. Now, we'll pursue this more next week. But look on page 29. How do you defeat the tyranny of the urgent? And this is this matrix that some of you have seen uh, before, maybe in your work, but it has these four quadrants that list uh, what's important and what's urgent and what's not important and what's not urgent. And in the boxes, we're going to see what kinds of things go into each of those so that you can prioritize those that are most important. But important means this, it's of much import, carrying with it serious consequences. It's weighty, it's momentous, it's grave, it's significant. Urgent is pressing, compelling, calling for, calling for or demanding immediate action, anything that's characterized by urgency. So those are the two types of things that we're called to make choices about, the things that are truly of import, significant, importance, and then the things that are just calling for our time right now. And we've got to differentiate between those that are truly important and those that are, those that are not. That's what we'll start to do next, next week, all right? Let's ask the Lord to go with us this week, and then uh, we'll be finished. Father, we thank you for the blessings of this day, and thank you for the opportunity to step back and to consider the purpose for which you have called us out of the world and to yourself and to advance your purpose in your world. And Lord, we need to be able to see every aspect of the lives that you have called us to lead in our varied circumstances, in the providential stations in which you have placed us, for us to use all of those situations and roles that you have assigned 
in order to advance your cause. Lord, that means that we need to reflect as we're doing today and think about those things that are most important, those things that advance versus those things that retard the purpose. So thank you for this opportunity and for this quiet time to, to engage our minds in that way. Our lives are so busy and the demands are so great that it is, it is hard to find the time to think about what is most important. So, Lord, I pray that we'll be able to ponder this as we go through the tasks that you've assigned this week and begin to think about what's urgent versus what is important. And then next week, as we finish this off, to to look at ways that we can align our lives so that we successfully and efficiently advance the mission that you have given to us. We ask you to go with us this week. We ask you to grant us safety and to bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.